Welcome to the podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Area Church at First Parish in Sherborne. No matter who you are, who you love, we welcome you into our community of religious seekers. Please join us for our Sunday worship services at 10.30 a.m. More information can be found on our website at uuac.org or visit our Facebook page at Sherborne Unitarian Universalist. The reading today is from The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. It is titled On Joy and Sorrow and is adapted. Then a woman said, speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And the selfsame well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. When you are joyous, look deep into your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart and you shall see that in truth you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say, joy is greater than sorrow, and others say, no, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. So this month's theme is loss. And when I was preparing for this service, this first service of a new theme, I felt felt some ambivalence. And I, I felt this for a few reasons. But one reason is that I knew that I was the one in the worship associate meeting when when we were planning these monthly meetings who really put a stake in the ground for loss. I can still hear myself saying, I mean, there's just been so much loss over this past year and a half. I, I fear that if we don't have a theme directly addressing it, we wouldn't have provided a space for loss or reiterated that in this place, you can bring your whole selves, even the bits no one else wants, i.e. your losses. Of course, I didn't realize at the time that this theme would begin the Sunday after All Souls. So further still, I remember feeling that if these losses continue to go unnamed, unacknowledged, they'll begin to fester because there's just so much. All souls when reflecting now, it was such a beautiful service, is just one part of it. There's, there's so much who can keep up. And those things I think are true. All of those things are true, that we want to create a space and this is the space. But also I think, I I thought then, that surely by now, if we were still in the thick of things, there would be an availability to talk about loss because unlike before the pandemic when society at large suggested in subtle and, and not so subtle ways that one should keep their losses to themselves, keep them just under the surface, that would be near impossible now, 
right? I mean, it's just everywhere. And this got me thinking of an old friend of my wife's who's an actor and a musician. And nearly everyone back then in this group was either an actor or a musician or both. And this is in the days of black and white headshots. And headshots are eight by 10 pictures of yourself with your resume stapled on the back of it and that your agent would send to casting directors in the hopes of getting you an audition. Now these headshots are a big deal. Who took them, how current they are, because this picture, this eight by 10 picture, it's, it's just of your face. And so her friend, he, he had very strong feelings about these pictures and he would say, holding his hand like this, these pictures, they're just, they're so in your face. And I remember cracking up when I heard this because it was true. These, these headshots are something ridiculous. I don't, I don't think they're like that anymore, but this is how I feel about loss right now. This is my relationship to, to, this, to the loss in this pandemic. It's just, it's in my face. And so returning to my ambivalence and my idea about this readiness to talk about loss, I, I, I don't want, I don't really want to talk about loss. I mean, I do. And I don't, right? Because I'm full. I'm just, I'm just all full up. I need some laughs. I mean, good God, do I need some laughs. But I grew up in a home that was all laughs and no loss. And so this, this bit's tricky. Because my memories tell me that there was scarcely any room to acknowledge loss. There wasn't any talking about it, sitting with it, or openly moving through it together. My sense of it today is that maybe my folks felt like if they acknowledged and named the loss, gave it space within the space of our family, that that's all there'd be, because there just was so much of it. Better focus then on the light things. And to some extent, my intellectual mind understands this, with the day-to-day grind, so much going on, the work week is now, right now, with these precious few moments, the time to dive in, risk being taken under by all this loss. But is this how it works? Is this either or really the only choice? Must it be doom and gloom or all lapse? I mean, sometimes it, it feels like that. And that's how it felt in my home. Like, that was the only choice. It, it felt like in my house, laughs were the only menu, the only item. That was it. Bearing this in mind, when I was applying to seminary, BU's application asked that you write two essays, one of which had to be about a book or a movie that had a great impact on you. And I really wanted to write about a book, you know, a classic. I wanted to just spin a yarn and impress them. But I couldn't do that because I came to reading late. I was a very poor student as a kid, and while I read plays, I didn't read a book of fiction cover to cover until my third year of college. But then I realized the beauty in this question, because they didn't care what, what the book or movie was. They wanted to know about my relationship to it. And alas, books were not the preferred method of escape in my childhood home, movies were. So despite my best efforts 
To rewrite my cultural history, the fact remains that I was raised on sarcasm and fart jokes. <laughs> so I wrote about Caddyshack. <laughs> For those of you whose movie taste is not of the screwball variety, Caddyshack has all the trappings of 1980s male infantile humor. In my house, it was a hit. But joking aside, what, what I wrote about was how this lowest common denominator comedy was used by the family system as a life raft across the choppy waters of discontent, upset, and loss. No matter the relational fissures, Caddyshack was a panacea of sorts, soothing, smoothing the surface and relieving us from the pain, if only temporarily. And that's a great power. That's a great power indeed, that which can eradicate, because that's how it felt. I learned that it only takes a few well-placed jokes or the push of a play button to receive a fast pass to the homeostasis that was an agreed-upon joy, no matter how unconscious or tenuous it may have been. So turning to the reading then, the author tells us that your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And further still, the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. I just want to say that again. The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. That is, for someone like me, a bold, troublesome, and inviting proposition. One, quite frankly, that I need to be true. I need this to be true. But how can it be true. Doesn't this edge us perilously close to the precipice that is some kind of hindsight justifying of pain? Do I today feel more joy as a result of a home filled with a kind of panicked, joyless laughter? Is that even the right question? Is that even what the author is saying? No. I don't think it is, but this is the natural place one goes to during pain. The why. When looking back at my childhood home, the respite view humor was, it was thin and fleeting because it was an escape. Because humor can provide both an escape hatch or a map through. And they're not the same thing. And so this is the rub, it would seem. Do we know the why and how of the humor we dispense and seek refuge in? Maybe in the before time, as I've heard the pre-pandemic days referred to, it was somehow easier to discern this question of how and why. But my hunch is that that's, that's not the case. This pandemic, in a lot of ways, I think has forced us to look at what was already there. It's just in those days, it was in a, an amount that we could avoid, a, a smaller amount. But now, today, the portion size that is the pandemic is huge, and I feel like I'm stuck. I'm stuck between crying and laughing. I know I need to do both, but sometimes the order, it, it feels wonky. Maybe I should be doing one instead of the other, which leads to the fear that I'll only really do one. This pandemic time, it, it feels like a kind of emotional hamster wheel. I like those carnival rides that keep you pressed to the side as it, as it spins faster and faster. I, I can't seem to get off. 
So if I allow myself to feel the loss, it, it, it does start to feel all-encompassing, just as when I forget about it. I play and I laugh. I, I can forget about it for a moment. And so again, I understand why it would feel better to just stay on the wheel of laughs. Why wade in and try to tread the waters of loss and upset? But I think that, I think we should because it's my understanding that if you want to go up, you first have to go down. So for Carl Jung, water represents the unconscious. And without getting too heavily into Jungian psychology and, and perhaps risking being rather reductive, if one wants to live a more whole and realized life, they must plunge the depths of their unconscious in order to elevate their consciousness. They must go down in order to go up. Is this not what the reading is telling us? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. So to answer my question from before, did I feel, do I feel more joy today as a result of my childhood experiences? No, the answer is no, because it's the wrong question born out of a knee-jerk reaction to the author's provocative declaration. The author instructs that one can contain more joy, not that they will. It's not a guarantee. Here the author reminds us of our agency by telling us it matters how we tend to our sorrow. It matters, then, how we use humor for the tending. Sorrow painfully mines its way down into the depths of our interiority, and laughter brings us up for air. And this air that fills the newly carved hole, it's solve for the wound. James Finley, the Christian contemplative, asked the question, can we be safe and vulnerable at the same time? I understand this question to be the invitation that loss brings. And an authentic laughter bubbled up out of the depths of our sorrow answers that question with a yes. That yes, this is the place where safety and vulnerability meet. The veritable, the genuine humor sanctifies our sorrow. They realize one another and the sound is laughter. Humor and the ensuing laughter, that's, a, that's one way that we name our sorrows. But sometimes, there is a time, and sometimes a long time, before we can see that laughter, before we can feel it move our ribs. The body heaves in a different way when it sobs than when it howls with laughter, I think. And we can't rush that. And so it's okay to press the pause button and say that right now I'm, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for jokes, it's too soon. But the difference though is in the claiming and naming for ourselves and then eventually for those that hold, we hold dear. That while now may be too soon, we will eventually come up for air. The Trappist monk Thomas Merton, when speaking about life in the monastery, said that this is as serious as death. And if you don't have a sense of humor, you're not going to make it. So, and this sounds true to me 
about our lives at this moment. I mean, it, it sounds true before the pandemic, but it absolutely sounds true now. And so as an example, I'd like to read a little bit from an obituary. Stay with me. <laughs> this, this obituary here, it hangs on our refrigerator. And my mother-in-law, who lives in Los Angeles, read it in the paper, cut it out, and sent it to us a few years back. And it tells about the life of Gifford Myers. He's an artist and a teacher. It reads relaxed and approachable, which, according to the obituary, is, is just how Gifford was. Each paragraph begins with an entry point of humor. So I'll just, I'll just read a little bit. Wow. I clearly am older since the last time I tried to read this. Wow, that's, that's shocking. Okay. Um, after 70 years of showing up late to everything, Gifford Myers finally did something too early, passed away peacefully on March 11th, 2019. After college, in one harebrained scheme to sell old-timey knickers, Gifford drove, dove headfirst into ceramics and sculpture. And though Gifford said he just worked with his hands, he did a few things with his head, too. And here's the last bit. Gifford is survived by Willie and Katie, his trusty guard dog, Jackson, his brother, Terry, and sister, Alice, and 21 surfing monkey statues from Tijuana. <laughs> Wait for it. In lieu of flowers, Please put on a clown nose, look at yourself in the mirror, and laugh. And my wife and I have an ongoing debate about whether Gifford wrote this obituary himself or if one of his loved ones did. My wife is convinced he wrote it himself, that is one last gift to his loved ones, anyone really. He delved into his sorrow and came up with a real gem. There is little doubt to me that this pandemic has eroded our ability to play, rendering us less attuned to the fullness of our losses and sorrows. It is as the poet says, I think, I want it, I want it to be so, that with great sorrow comes the potential for great joy, but both must be inhabited for either to sing. So over the coming week, take notice then when humor, frivolity, levity, and most certainly unseemliness offer you an invitation. You may just find yourself crying. Blessed be, and may it be so.